And if you just remain standing for the reading of God's Word, we come today in Revelation chapter 2 to actually my favorite church. It's my favorite church because I wrote a term paper on this back in graduate school. More on that later. Pastor will be very transparent today. This is God's Word to us this morning, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives." Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I soon will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. Father God, May you honor the reading of your word today with hearing, with understanding, enlightenment, the work of your Holy Spirit to bring your truth to bear on each of our lives. For those of us who are gathered here today, standing and sitting, those who are watching online now or even at a later preordained time by you, Father God, I pray for your spirit to speak, and as you speak, I pray for us to listen for the distractions and the doubts and the, 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 the cares and the concerns of this world or, or perhaps even just our, our, our lives and our physical bodies, those will just be pushed aside and we can hear afresh from you what you have to say to us today. Speak into our lives your truth, Father God. As always, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, not to, not to obscure, not to distract, but to help reveal to help clarify. And I ask this in the name of Jesus as we pray through Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, your Son, O Father God. Amen. You may be seated. And I do want to give a special welcome to those who are joining with us online today. We're even at a later date. We're so glad that you are a part of the Oak Park family. Remember, you can participate in today's service by texting in comments, questions, prayer praises, or prayer requests to 805-481-7092. And please include a name if you are a first-time texter inner on that. The church in Pergamum. This is part of a series of the book of Revelation. We've we've covered Revelation for a couple of weeks now. Revelation is one of the most confusing, one of the most misunderstood, and one of the most misused books of the entire Bible. Uh, It is either extremely intimidating to people or it's just simply very confusing. It has been misapplied by generations of Bible teachers and that is a very sad thing because it is, it is scripture. It is God's word. It, it is a message not only 
to those it was written to in the first century, but it is timeless truth. The book of Revelation was written to a group of seven churches in what is now modern Turkey, in western Turkey. And there was, in these cities, there were, there were churches, there were Christians, and they were up against it because Christians have always been up against it. <laughs> That's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus says, the world has hated me, the world will hate you. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The Christians in these cities lived faithfully, for the most part, for Jesus, and they suffered immensely. Revelation is the final book of the Bible. In the book of Hebrews, it says, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son, which means there's going to be no more messiahs, there's going to be no more prophets, there's going to be no more communications to this world in this era until this era, this time of creation is completed. Jesus is God's final word to us. And the book of Revelation is Jesus' final word to us as well. The book of Revelation is a revelation of or a revelation from Jesus himself. This is Jesus' last message to his churches. And even though it's written to seven specific churches, the message applies to all churches everywhere in all times. That's the power of the word of God. The word of God is living and active God's word comes to bear on our lives, in our circumstances, in our situations, regardless of when we live or where we live. God's word is active and powerful. But there's a precursor to these messages, these seven messages that is so important. It holds such an important key for understanding things. Jesus says to his last living of the 12 disciples, John, who wrote the book, he says to John this, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, what is going on right now, in the A.D. 90s, most likely, and what will take place later. He had been given, John had been given a vision of seven stars and seven lampstands, and, and Jesus explains that. He says this, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Foundational truth. Every congregation of Christians, every body that comes together in the name of Jesus, no matter how large or how small, any group of Christians that chooses to associate together has an angel assigned to them. And an emissary from God for, for communication, for oversight, for connection, whatever it may be. We're talking about the spiritual realm. It's going to be kind of weird. But there is a church. There, there's an angel of the church of Oak Park. And our job is to make his life better, not harder. Most of the time we're okay at that. But, but every congregation has an angel, but every church itself is represented as a lampstand. A lampstand, that which shines forth light. Jesus says, you, as my followers, are the light of the world. And every congregation's purpose in life is to be light in the midst of darkness. This dark world. 
And when our time as a church comes to an end, when the angel is recalled and our time as a church is no more, and hopefully it's many generations from now, that lampstand will be removed as the lampstand of each of these seven was removed. They served the Lord Jesus' purposes in their time. Jesus came, and those churches no longer now exist. We exist to serve as a light to the community That is our purpose, light shining in darkness. And so we come to the church in Pergamum. Yeah, they had lots of weird names of cities back then. But then again, ours would sound weird to them today as well. To the church in Pergamum, Jesus says this, I know where you live. We have biblical confirmation that Jesus is a stalker. But if you were a Christian, you already know that because you already know that Jesus sees everything and knows everything going on in your life. That is not anything to be scared of. That is to be very comforting and assuring as long as you're doing what Jesus wants you to do. But the city of Pergamum itself, the word means fortress. And this place, this city was in prime unattackable, unassailable position. Now, it's the northernmost of the seven cities that we see as the mail route goes up from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamos or Pergamum, as both, both spellings are fine. And then we work our way down the, the main route, the main mail route there in that part of Asia Minor. So Pergamum is the, the northernmost city. And in all honesty, it is one of the absolute crown jewels of the ancient world. Ephesus was a gleaming, bustling, busy, important, influential, wealthy city. Smyrna was also very wealthy, very uh, immaculate in in, in the, the design of the buildings. It was exceptionally wealthy as well. But Pergamum was the crown jewel. It served as the capital. It served as the capital of the entire region. As such, it had incredible architecture. A huge amphitheater was was built into the hillside because the city itself was built basically on a thousand-foot canonical or uh, uh, cone-shaped hill. We have a lot of those around here. It was virtually unassailable or impenetrable by armed forces. Two rivers went on the sides, and it was steep, a steep mountainside that flattened out in certain areas, and the city was very large. But it was very elaborate. It was just an absolutely beautiful crown jewel of a city. It it hosted the second largest library of the ancient world in that time. In fact, the word parchment, if you've studied at all any kind of history, you know that parchment was one one of the predecessors to paper. Parchment was what people wrote on. The word parchment comes from Pergamum because that was one of the major industries where it was produced from sheepskin. It was a major commodity in the area. It was politically important. It was architecturally spectacular. It was highly esteemed in the Roman Empire. And it was an absolute epicenter for religion, for religiosity. Altars and temples were dedicated to a wide variety of deities. Nearly every major pagan religion practiced in the Roman Empire had representation there. 
The city itself was supposedly founded by Zeus, or Zeus, the Greek god Zeus figured in to the founding of the city. So a part of, as part of the city, there was an immense altar and statue of Zeus as, as the god of the city. There were temples to all of the Greek gods, Dionysus and Athena and the whole gamut of the Greek Parthenon. They were so multicultural that they're in Asia Minor. They also had a whole host of temples built to the Egyptian gods. They were very multicultural. They were very inclusive. Temples were everywhere. One of the largest was uh, basically the, the adopted god of the city, the Greek god Asclepius, or Asclepius. He was the god of healing. The god of healing was so popular at this day that he had the largest temple. He had the biggest, uh, the biggest complex of buildings. Uh, they had uh, hundreds of things going on in this epicenter of worship. And, and Asclepius is important because uh, he was a healer. He was the go- Greek god of healing. And as he walked around, he had a, he had a, a, a huge uh, cane or a huge rod that he walked with. And then the symbol of him became a rod with a snake wrapped around it. Even today, the symbol of modern medicine is from Asclepius, the caduceus. We still see that on on hospitals or on medical uh, businesses and things like that. That is the influence of the Greek god of healing, Asclepius. But in spite of all of those temples, all of those centers of worship, pagan idolatry, so you couldn't spit without hitting a pagan temple or a pagan priest, or a pagan priestess. It was everywhere. But the crown jewel, what the city really prided itself on, was not its great architecture, its amazing amphitheater, uh, or even its amazing library. It was the site of the first temple dedicated to a Roman emperor. Emperor Augustus. He was the first of the Roman emperors. Now, Augustus himself did not claim to be divine. But the Roman Senate and and others in in Roman hierarchy, they did declare him to be a god, and they instituted required worship of Augustus and every Roman emperor to be done throughout the empire. It was required worship. You could worship any gods you want. You just have to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. So you acknowledge Caesar is Lord, and then you go worship Asclepius. You go and worship Zeus. You go and worship one of the hundreds of other gods that had, that had, that had taken up residence and had shops open there in Pergamum. Caesar just had to come first. You didn't have to believe in Caesar. You didn't have to believe he was a god, but you had to pay homage to him. That was it. You had to acknowledge or risk the consequences. This was so pervasive that every public building had a, had a bust of, of the emperor. And there was a bust there on the pillar. You, you may have seen pictures in, like in some of history books or just in other movies and stuff. You know, it was a, it was a, a, a small poster with the, with the carving of the head of the emperor. But in front would be a little thing of incense. 
And so to do any kind of business, any public business, anything in the city, anything to do with the empire, you had to walk in, you had to go over, take some incense, put incense on the flame to create the odor and to create the flame and to, to, to show your homage, and then stand back and, and either bow or acknowledge Caesar is Lord. Then you could go in and do your business. Big problem. Christians can't do that because Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. Coming to the church, there's no record of it <laughs> being founded in Scripture. It was probably a fa- founded about the same time as the churches in Smyrna and, and the other areas that we'll be talking about during this series. There was a two-year period where the gospel expanded very quickly in this region of the world through the Apostle Paul. Church is not mentioned ever again in Scripture. In spite of it being so important to the Roman Empire and such an epicenter of religion, it's never mentioned. The only two times it's mentioned are here in the book of Revelation. It's also virtually absent from church history. So all we know, all we get is this. But there's a lot there. There's a lot that has gone on in this church. Jesus' message to this church is this. I know where you live. It's not a threat. It's a comfort. Jesus is saying, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. To any real estate agents in the audience, how well does marketing where Satan has his throne, how well of a marketing strategy is that going to be for a prospective home buyer? Come on down. Satan's running rampant here. Let's have a lot of fun. Well, for some, it would appeal to. Unfortunately, not for others. This city, Ephesus, was, was, was the epicenter of, of the worship of, of one of the greatest pagan goddesses of all time. The, the worship was horribly immoral. That's not the throne of Satan. Smyrna, likewise, had immense temples and all of this epicenter of, of worship of false gods, including the emperor, but it was the second emperor, not the first emperor. Smyrna's not where Satan dwells. Pergamum is where Satan dwells. And it's obviously not literal. Satan does not have a throne. Satan does not have a physical body. He is not just encased in one, one a corporeal entity in time and space. So it's symbolic language. Pergamum was the heart of the beast, the belly of the beast. That is where these Christians lived and loved Jesus and served Jesus and died for Jesus. That was Pergamum. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, the heart of darkness, so to speak. Now, this phrase may refer just to the sheer number of pagan deities that were worshipped. And we do know, as Christians, that where pagan deities are worshipped, demonic activity is not only present, it is prevalent. Demons exist. And they inhabit the praise and the worship of false gods. Could you imagine the darkness of this city where Satan lives? In spite of all those temples, it is most likely a reference. Satan's throne was the temple dedicated to Augustus. 
It was the center of the imperial cult, the greatest rival to Jesus. Zeus was not a rival. Diana was not a rival. Ra was not a rival. Mithras was not a rival. Hundreds of others of the pretenders were not rivals to Jesus. Only Caesar. Why was Caesar the rival? Because Caesar demanded loyalty and Caesar would take your life if you did not give it. It's a matter of life and death. We know that John, or Jesus here, is referring to the imperial cult because in the rest of the book of Revelation, the city of Rome is referred to as Babylon. And all of the great evils flow from Babylon the Great. And Babylon was the city of Rome. We know that. Jesus knows where they live. He knows that they have withstood They have stayed faithful, yet you remain true to me. You did not renounce my name. You did not worship in the pagan temples. You did not bow the knee. You did not light the incense. You did not utter Caesar is Lord. You stayed faithful. You remained true to me. You did not renounce my name. And what that means is, they had plenty of opportunities to do just that. You see, saving faith in Jesus is not merely personal, internal. It's not just a me and Jesus thing. I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I am good to go to heaven. That's not the point of personal salvation. Salvation is to be a life-changing, life-altering relationship. We put ourselves on the altar and sacrifice ourselves to Jesus. That's dying to self. That's what discipleship is. Faith must be spoken. Confession is actually a requirement for salvation. We think it's just intellectual assent or just mere faith. But the Apostle Paul says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead and you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Jesus said, whoever denies me before others, I will deny before my Father in heaven. If you confess me before others, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. No Christian martyr has ever been executed or put to death just because they simply lived out the principles of Jesus, because they turned the other cheek, because they loved their enemy, because they gave to the poor. No Christian in history has ever been executed for the lifestyle they lived. Every Christian that has been executed and that continues today, and it's actually escalating in our world today, not more Christians are being killed now than, than it, just, it just keeps increasing. Christians are killed today because of what they say or they will not say. They will not say Allah Akbar because Jesus is Lord. They will not renounce Christ. They will stay faithful. And they are put to death because of what they will say or what they will not say, not because of how they lived. Lifestyle is very important in witness, but our lifestyle must also be articulated as to why we're weird and different and countercultural. Thank you.
Martyrdom comes from that which is stated, not with that which is believed or simply lived. Jesus reminds them, although I'm sure they needed no reminding, of Antipas, my faithful witness, excuse me, a faithful Christian who had already been executed before his refusal to say, Caesar is Lord. He was clearly a real person, and the name was a common name. It was short for a more common name called Antipater. Uh, Antipater was instead of or against the father, if you know kind of Greek or in some of the Latin type stuff, anti, against, pater, father. Instead of the father, against the father. So Antipas was a shortened form of that. But it was also a combination word. It was anti Pos, all, everything, or the whole. Given the symbolic nature of the literature in Revelation, it is very unlikely that the guy's name was actually Antipas. All of the other names are more uh, metaphorical names or more um, pseudonyms. So this could be my faithful witness, the one you remember, you know who he was. He stood against all. He stood against the empire, Antipas, against everything with his life. In spite of such knowledge and in spite of such faithfulness, in the face of life and death, Jesus says, I've still got some things. You're not quite there yet. You tolerate some wickedness. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Terrifying words from the Lord Jesus. Really? A few? Not just one little minor, teeny, tiny thing that I could fix real easily? A few things. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. Some believers within the congregation were holding to errant theologies that allowed the eating of meat from sacrifices to false gods which was contra the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. And then, of course, theologies that allowed for the indulgence in sexual sin. That's always the hallmark for everything. We always want excuses to avoid the morality that God has prescribed in Scripture. These Christians were standing firm. They were were not bowing to Caesar, but in their midst, they were allowing those who were teaching errant theologies they were, the, they were the ones allowing that the, the sex is evil, evil is sin, sin is forgiven, so sex is in kind of mentality. It's okay what you do, just, just go ahead and get forgiveness afterwards. Because after all, forgiveness is easier than permission, right? So they had members of the church who were, now the meat sacrifice to idols thing, um, so all these temples had sacrifices. There was an abundance of meat available in the market. And you know what? It was usually marked down because it had already been dedicated to a false god. So you can go get some re- you know, reduced price on the meat. Hey, it's great. You get a little, lot more for your money. And these Christians were probably struggling financially because of the economic burdens of the area and all of that. And there were Christians who were saying, hey, it's, it's okay to go ahead and partake of that which has been dedicated to a demon even though that had already been forbidden for Christians by the Jerusalem Council. Abstain from the meat sacrificed to idols. 
Render to Caesar what is Caesar. Render to God what is God's. Go ahead and let the demons have that. You stay pure. But they were making excuses, saying it was okay. And then, of course, sexual licentiousness. He brings out a couple of specific um, names and, and a couple of specific examples. Balaam was a prophet a prophet who in his greed perverted God's instructions and helped entice God's people into sin. One who supposedly spoke for God. This is duplicitousness, two-facedness. This is hypocrisy. So Balaam the prophet. The Nicolaitans were a heretical group who also infiltrated the Ephesian church. Their theology was the same. God is a gracious God who forgives. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. So don't worry about the flesh. Just focus on the spirit. And whatever, whatever problems or whatever things the flesh entails or gets entangled in, nah, it's all forgiven. Anyway, so don't worry about it. It's not what Scripture says. Now there are some promises for repentance. Hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I referenced my term paper. 1992, 31 years ago. If you want a humbling experience, go back and read something you wrote 31 years ago. My poor professor, Dr. Lowry. He's enjoying his reward right now. In my exegete, which is the, the, the interpretation or the study of this passage, I was 20-whatever years old. And to be honest, I had no clue what hidden manna meant, what the white stone with the new name on it meant. No idea whatsoever. So as you do when you're writing a term paper, you bluff. And as I got to this point, oh, I should have marked a little bit better. Where is it here? Da, 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 da. As I got to this point, I postulated, I copied what some other, what some other scholars had said. And then I basically said this. Basically, believers can look forward to it as a promise to be anticipated and enjoyed knowing that their Lord will provide, will pro provide our care for them. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> this, will, this will not be on display in, any, in anything else. Anyway, so the, the language is terrible. But basically, I just say, hey, it's going to be something great. That's what I wrote. I got a B on it. <laughs> Other parts were pretty good. Right next to that, my professor wrote in letters with a big exclamation point, cop out. <laughs> Whew, that's harsh stuff. And then at the end of the paper, he writes, last few pages, you seem to run out of steam. In the intervening 30 years of being in the Scriptures, maturing in faith at least some, of studying more and learning more and contemplating things more and, and just having a little bit more maturity, 
Here's the hidden manna. And here's what the white stone means. This is for you, Dr. Lowry. Hope you're watching. The hidden manna refers to the jar of manna that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Lost throughout history, but in Jewish belief, the, the, the jar of the hidden manna would be found and opened at the great messianic banquet at the, at, the, at the arrival of the Messiah or the end of time. It would be a part of the celebration. And so this is a promise from Jesus to these faithful Christians that they will be there at the what we know as the wedding supper or the marriage supper of the Lamb with his church, the people. That hidden manna which symbolizes God's provision and sustenance in all of glory, will be ours. And then to the white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Well, white is a symbol of purity or innocence. I even knew that back back 30 years ago. And the stone refers to the judgment of not being guilty. In courts at that time, there was a white rock and a black rock. White rock was not guilty. A black rock was guilty. So the white stone is the fact that we are not guilty. We will be guilty of treason by not saying Caesar is Lord. But we will be declared not guilty by the God of the universe, a much higher court to whom we appeal. We are not guilty. The granting of a name is the symbol of authority. Adam was given the, the, the privilege and the power to name the animals. Uh, throughout history, oh, God changes the names. He changes Abram to Abraham, things like that. God's authority. But here's the, here's the beauty and the specialness of, of a name that is given to each of us as individual Christians known only to us. Jesus knows you. Jesus has a name for you. It is your name. It is not your brother's name, your sister's name, your family name, or anything else. It is your name that Jesus gives to you. That is a sign of the intimacy that we have with Jesus, of being known, uh, of knowing and being fully known, of knowing God and being known by God. It is intimacy, a white stone with our name. Jesus knows what we're going through. So this is his message to us today. Jesus knows where we live, central coast of California, or California Stan, however you want to put it. Jesus knows the politics. Jesus knows the cultural degradation. He knows all of the particulars of our area, but this is where he has called us to live and to stand for his truth, his light, as a church to continue the lampstand of Oak Park Christian Church shining bright in the community of the five cities and beyond. He knows where we live. He's not caught off guard by the awful legislation that continues to get passed in Sacramento. He is not surprised by the immorality, the cesspool of immorality that continues to come out of Hollywood. He is not surprised that San Luis Obispo County is one of the centers for human trafficking in the entire state of California. Yes, our sleepy little town, our little area. 
Jesus is not surprised. He has called us here to stand and to be light because he knows where we live. And our greatest visible witness in this culture, aside from many other things, but in the context of Pergamum, our greatest visible witness will be living out godly sexual morality in a horribly sexually immoral culture. Just a reminder of the basics. Sexual morality, according to God's word, is this. A male husband married to a female wife. That's not, that's not exclusive. That's not hateful. I'm not saying those relationships can't exist elsewhere in the world. But for those in Christ, those with allegiance to God's word, a husband united to a wife, having sexual intimacy and relationships only with one another, that's it. And there's beauty and power and joy and blessing untold, which secular research continues to show, by the way. But that will be how we make a stand, by not participating in the sexual immorality of society around us. And we're going to look weird, and we're going to look stupid, and we're going to receive the pity of others. I think we'll have the last laugh, and it's okay. And it's not a laugh at all. I think we'll be okay with God's blessing. And our greatest verbal witness will continue to be adhering to God's word as true. God's word is truth. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. Jesus died for our sins. I am forgiven through faith in Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. New life is available in him. The principles, the precepts, the teachings, the stories, the commands, the instructions, the examples in Scripture are all true and authoritative for us. Jesus says, if you don't repent, if you continue allowing sexual immorality and this extensive cultural compromise of participating in that which is offered to demons, Jesus says, I will come and I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. What's the sword? The sword is the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. We continue to go back to the Word of God, continue to search the Scriptures, read the Scriptures, Obey the scriptures, contemplate the scriptures, weave them into our life more and more and more. That is what we must do as we get back to Jesus. I'd like to have Mike and the team come on stage. And getting back to Jesus is what communion is all about. We honor Jesus for his sacrifice, taking our sins in his body on the cross, rising from the dead, his blood purifying us from our sin. That is the confession we hold fast to. Jesus is Lord because of his victory over death.